the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Saturday Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are, as usual, Harrison and Elan. Hello. Hello. Um, we also have a special guest this week, straight from the French, the heart of all things French, uh, Pierre Lescaudron. Bonjour. Uh, given that Pierre is with us, you may have suspected... Or you may suspect, and you may also suspect by the title of the show, <laughs> that we are going to be talking about the French election. Not so, North Korea? Not North Korea. Well, we might talk about North Korea a little bit. But mainly we're going to be talking about the French election because the results will be in probably in roughly an hour or less. Um, <clears throat> we, um, we're not hopeful about the future for France or the world for that matter. Um, but uh, we're watching it anyway, and we're going to be commenting on it. So, uh, yes, we'll be commenting on the results of the French election uh, in advance of the results and for a little bit afterwards uh, until we get so depressed that we can't talk anymore. Uh, between now and then, we'll also talk a little bit about Russia, um, what's going on in Russia, Syria, that kind of thing, safe zones, and maybe a little bit more about the North Korean caper. So, that said, take it away. Harrison. Well, we can start out with the elections and then come back to them at the end of the show. Maybe probably one of the big things in the news was, of course, the uh, the much-anticipated Russian hacking of the French election. Which, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it looks like it just happened uh, on it Friday have been night. A, it wouldn't <laughs> have been an election in the, in the free world without Russian hacking, right? No, I mean, exactly. Fine these days. <clears throat> I was waiting. Gives them their credentials. I was waiting for it, and it came a little a little too late for my liking. I think the Russians are getting a bit lazy because it came on the Friday before the Sunday election. But um, you know, what can you do? Putin's busy with other things. He you know he must have just forgotten, and you know, last minute yeah. decided to hack well, the French election. You know, yeah. it was interesting though, because after this uh, hacking thing. Judges reacted within five minutes to Macron's uh, complaint, and, uh, and they issued a gag order, and they warned the French media to not publish any information pertaining to this leak. Although, according to the Macron team, they were indeed hacked, so there are at least uh, true information in, uh, mm-hmm. in, this, in this dump. Um, and these are the same media, and of course the media were, were too happy not to relay the information and uh, to expose. Uh, they didn't have to be told, did they? But yeah, of course. <laughs> but the message was not for them. The message for, was for the alternative media. Mm-hmm. So they had to, sh- to shut up. Yeah. But at the same time, those mainstream media who were too very happy to com- to comply and actually stated so and say, yeah, we won't interfere, we won't publish anything because it's unethical. And they are the parangons of ethics, as we know. Especially when you observe the, the pre-election phase, where for months, every single day, on the radio and TV, they were blabbing about the alleged misconducts of Juppé and Le Pen. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, those financial uh, frauds and those uh, presents that should have been declared and, uh, and a Penelope gate. And, Against Fillon, yeah. And keep in mind, Le Pen and Fillon have not been tried and not, not been sentenced. They're supposed to be innocent until mm-hmm. proven guilty. Well, yeah. In theory. So it's but okay if you, uh, you, it's okay if you come out with, uh, information about, uh, malfeasance regarding Le Pen and Filon and others, but, uh, if you come out with information about Macron, it must be an illegal hack, a, a, a Russian, uh, subterfuge right. or, or evil propaganda, uh, designed to destroy the establishment of France. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, what is interesting in, in that Macron, you know, the official narrative now is now um, the hack includes some uh, fake news, according to which Macron has a bank account in a fiscal paradise, in a tax haven. Okay, and uh, it's due to the hack, according to the official narrative. But when you look at the, the history of the elections on the seventeenth of April, before the release of the hack, before they were hacked actually, because they were hacked on the twenty fourth of April, according to to the Macron team, Macron was already reacting, preempting this move and saying, yeah, someone come up with me having a bank account in a tax haven. And uh, Le Canard Enchaîné, a newspaper, had released rumors this very same day, the 17th of April, according to which Macron had a bank account in a tax haven. His tax haven was in the Bahamas. Well, no, they they were saying, first it was saying it was in the Bahamas. But then, yeah, then the leak came out and it was the Cayman Islands. So I think what happened at, at yes. first, there were the rumors about his tax haven and then he denied it, saying, oh, I have no you know, bank accounts in the Bahamas, that's fake news. And then the leak came out and it was the Cayman Islands. So, Yeah, well, I mean, I understand that he would spend a lot of time in the Cayman Islands with his wife, you know, <clears throat> because everybody knows that getting a bit, bit of tan it helps to make you look a bit younger, you know, so, and that would work well for, for his wife, you know. Oh, I mean, his grandmother, I mean, his grand, I mean, his, his teacher, his teacher, his teacher. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. That should be, that should be his campaign uh, anthem. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> some credence should be given to this, uh, to this rumor because of two factors that are proven. First, you know, when you're candidate for the French presidential elections, you have to uh, declare your patrimony your state, your wealth. And uh, Macron has a very low statement, like 200,000 euros. Miserable. Mm. And this guy who spent years at Rothschild Bank as an associate, was Minister of Economy, or those uh, very high wages, in order to, within 10 years roughly, to accumulate this very small patrimony, mm. he had to spend more than 1,000 euros a day, every single day for 10 years. So there's a legitimate question. Where did the money go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on, on the leaky things, I mean, there's obviously there's like something like nine gigabytes of data and stuff and emails from all different type, types of people. Only thing I've really been able to see from it is that um, there's e- emails, if they're legitimate emails, they're emails that um, are from a Russian security contractor company. I can't remember the name right now, but apparently there's emails in there from that. And the other thing that was interesting was that the the paper, you know, on on the printed e- the, these emails were apparently printed because and then scanned or something, 
because um, or some of the documents were uh, because they bear a a mark, you know, a a MAC address or something or some kind of identifier on them that shows what they were printed on or what printer was used to scan them or whatever. And two of the printers that were, that were identified were were Canon printers, and one was one hundred thirty. One is, I think, one is three hundred thousand uh, dollars. Or something, yeah, $299,000 for one printer, and the other one is $100,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so by this, people are saying, well, it had to come from a major, a major organization, you know, with the kind of funds to, uh, I, I think maybe Rothschild Bank mm-hmm. probably has printer, <laughs> printers maybe, of, uh, of that quality. Maybe you know? that's what he was um, spending his money on. He's just buying high quality mm-hmm. printers all the time. Printers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that, yeah. That's where he's got all his, his, his loot stashed, it's been laundered into expensive printers. Uh, yeah, but so this, Macron, I mean, the thing that gets me Macron, about Macron, he's been, he's been, uh, we've talked about this kind of before and other people, is that, I mean, less than three years ago, even the French media were writing editorials titled, Who is Emmanuel Macron? You know, when he was uh, uh, the Minister of Economy our finance minister under our land. Um, but that's all he, that's the only high profile position he's had. Uh, previous to that, as mentioned, he was in Rothschild Bank and he just came up through the kind of ranks of the elite schools in, in, in France. So, I mean, my my question, my, what I just can't get my head around is, is the idea that this Mr. Nobody just mm-hmm. came out of nowhere, <clears throat> had no political, had never been elected to office uh, had no political party, just formed a political party mm-hmm. like six months ago or, or seven or eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as of now, has no uh, MP members of, of the French parliament attached to that political party. I mean, uh, he's basically a political non-entity. Now, what we're being asked to believe is that that's what makes him attractive. Apart from his shining blue eyes and buck teeth or whatever, that's what makes him attractive, uh, is that he's a, a nobody. Now, is that really reasonable? Uh, um, in the current climate, political climate or social climate in France, that a lot of French people would be would find that appealing, like essentially someone they don't know, and all 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 he's got going for him is that he could do something new because he's new. <clears throat> There's, it's part of the equation that is spread by the media. Yeah, you said uh, rightly so. Three years ago, he was considered as a nobody. It was three years ago. And uh, since then, there's been a huge mediatic effort to uh, shape, transform, spin the, the image of uh, Emmanuel Macron in uh, people's mind. Right. And uh, if you look at his uh, his CV, that, that's quite interesting because it's it's quite typical. It says a lot. So you have this guy who was a brilliant, a brilliant student, objectively. So he absorbs, he memorizes very well. And uh, at 15 years old, he meets his. Uh, theater, his acting uh, teacher, Brigitte, and something starts when he's 15 years old, uh, according to official documents, that's when they meet. Uh, according to official narrative, they only start to interact when uh, he's 18 or 16, according to the version of the facts, because in France, social majority is 16. So if anything happened when he was 15, it's basically... Uh, Illegal, it's pedophilia. So if it happened in a small village in rural France, the teacher Brigitte, 24 years 
older than him would be in jail and him would be in a kind of institution for traumatized children. But it didn't work this way. Mm. They ended up getting together. Actually, the husband, a banker, the first husband of Regine Macron, with whom she had three kids, he left when he saw the the story, the romance developing between uh, Emmanuel Macron and Brigitte Macron. And uh, in Amiens, this uh, bourgeois town in north of France, a lot of people knew about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the narrative today is strong is, a love is stronger than anything. <laughs> anyway, long story short, <clears throat> after this encounter, Emmanuel Macron goes to Paris, makes brilliant studies, gets a master in philosophy, actually. Claims he got a PhD, which he never had in philosophy. And he does the um, politics, uh, Sciences Po. And then he's uh, enrolled in ENA, the National Administration uh, School in France, that creates, that shapes the top elites, you know, the politicians. And uh, as soon as he leaves ENA in 2004, he's recruited by Jean-Pierre Jouillet, who, is, uh, who was minister for the right government, Sarkozy, and Secretary um, General for the left government, Hollande. Mm. So he's this kind of guy who transcends the big party illusion, you know? He's one of the eminent screes behind the thrones. Exactly. A kind of uh, colonial house. Mm. And uh, so in 2004, he recruits Emmanuel Macron in his uh, lawyer office. And for two years, he's going to, to groom him, to shape him. 2006, Macron goes to Rothschild Bank. And he starts as a, at the lowest level, as junior. And doing a merger and acquisition for Nestle company was just checking the Excel spreadsheets according to other bankers from the same bank. After this merger and acquisition, he's promoted from the lowest rank to the highest rank. Partner. Well, partner but, but that doesn't happen. Overnight. Why? How does that happen? Uh, he has uh, good fairies who looked uh, over his... Uh, I mean, when you start off, friend. when you come out of school, basically, and go into Rothschild Bank as a kind of... Uh, as a, a junior, a, a clerk, basically. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> what do you have to do to, uh, to 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 get partner in like what, like in in less than probably any year or or year and a half or two? In two in two years, he became partner. <laughs> he has friends in good places, maybe. It's ridiculous. And then he leaves Rothschild Bank, and he becomes he goes back to Jean Pierre Jouillet, his mentor. Uh-huh. And he becomes a deputy secretary general of the president Hollande. And the secretary general being Jean-Pierre Jouillet. Of the Elysee. Yeah, at the Elysee for two years. And then he becomes minister for the economy. It's called a meteoric rise, no? Meteoric. Never elected. And terrible results. I mean, terrible political results. Mm -hmm. Minister of economy. He is the father of the, the law that was named after Miriam Conry, not him, but he's, he's the one behind that, mm-hmm. that basically dismantled the labor law in France. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this is, so, this is what leaves me yeah. kind of, uh, uh, in, in, in almost disbelief. I mean, uh, by all accounts, he's being supported by, um, Hollande, the, you know, as we said on previous shows, one of the most unpopular, uh, presidents in, in French, recent French history. He's the, the father of this kind of um, economic austerity uh, law, and, um, and yet he proposes to tout himself as someone who's going to make things better. 
I mean, how much more obvious can it get that this guy is part of the the worst thinking of the establishment, uh, cares nothing for the average uh, worker in France. Uh, so, you know, it, it, this disconnect is is just uh, among anybody who supports him if if they're uh, kind of so part of the French establishment. Yeah, I mean, how does he even have any support there among uh, your average uh, working class person? Or is that just... Um, is that just an idea that's been uh, puffed up on the part of the establishment that he does have this support? I don't understand. Well, there always he has some support among the people because there are some people who follow blindly the what the media rec- say recommendation of the media. Right. It is sad, but it is true, and that the elites are very happy to to see Macron president. Uh, but he, this, has, he has supporters elsewhere as well, no? Yes, that's a point because when you dig around Jean-Pierre Jouillet, you know, the Macron mentor, you realize that Jean-Pierre Jouillet is a founder of several think tanks, Terra Nova, uh, Saint-Simon Foundation, uh, Mountain Institutes, those NGOs that have been funded by the NED, National Endorsement for Democracy, which is itself an emanation of the Five Eyes, the Intelligence services from uh, US, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. So Macron basically is a puppet who has the mission to implement the neoconservative liberal vision of those uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, elites. And uh, and you can see that the meteoric rise uh, starts to be even more visible around the year 2010, 2011, where he becomes fellow researcher for the London uh, School of Economics. In 2014, he participates to the Bilderberg meeting. In 2014, uh, he is awarded um, Young Leader by the Franco-American Foundation in 2013. So you see the rise and the, the creation of a, of a golem, of a creature that is supposed to, to embody, to lead France into the, the way of um, embracing those Anglo-Saxon values and this uh, very uh, nihilistic vision of the world. Well, one of the interesting things about um, the last few weeks, or the last couple of weeks, I guess, just, be, just since uh, Le Pen and Macron became the, the kind of finalists in the the UFC duel um, is that um, well, I you know I don't read French, so I don't actually read the French media. So maybe Pierre can uh, give some details. But from what I've seen from the outside, you know, from Western sources, English media commenting on French media, it looks like practically every media source in France, the all the newspapers and magazines are going full tilt for Macron. So you look at the, the covers, it's all his photographs. And if there is something about uh, Le Pen, it's kind of uh, putting her in a negative light. And there are even kind of official um, newspaper and media endorsements for Macron, basically saying, you must, you know, France should vote for Macron. And that's pretty much what we saw um, in the United States with uh, the Trump-Clinton election, where all these media um, magazines and newspapers were coming out denouncing Trump and saying that, you know, there, there were several newspapers uh, 
that said, oh, you know, we haven't endorsed a candidate for 60 years, but we feel this is the time to do it, and we're endorsing Clinton. So it seems almost like a repeat. Yes, you're right. You're right. It was, uh, I think, in France, having followed both campaigns, I think in France it was even worse, even more caricatural, because at least in the U.S. Trump had Fox News, Breitbart, he had some media, very popular media were supporting him, at least to some extent. In France, every single mainstream media was supporting night and day Emmanuel Macron. It was, it was like a joke. It was unbelievable. And I think it's one of the two main, whatever the, the issue of the second run is, the two major benefits I see so far is one, I think the mainstream media have lost a lot <clears throat> of the little credibility they had left because it was so biased that I, so many lies, so blatant, so obvious lies. I think a lot of people in France realized the real nature of the mainstream media. Uh, I think the other benefit is that for decades and decades in France, in many Western countries, most Western countries, you have this, you have this illusion of two parties, you know, that provide different vision, different politics, different solutions. And that creates false dualities, you know, white against black or woman versus man or heterosexual versus gay or whatever manufacture duality they can come up with. But during those elections in France, you finally had the real duality that emerged and the real debate between one candidate who defends the system who is a candidate of the system or the oligarchy of the elites, Emmanuel Macron on the other side, Marine Le Pen, who defends the people against the elites. So that is a positive point, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we're, when we're looking at this election, the, the implications of it are, are quite big. Um, you have Le Pen, who has uh, stated that she doesn't think that more sanctions should be levied against Russia, that uh, European um, uh, relations with Russia should be normalized. Uh, she's, I think, suggested the idea of um, you know tighter borders and um, and other kind of populist ideas that are, you know, we, we say they're populist, but in the vast scheme of things, it, it's just keeping uh, the, the people well, uh, well serviced uh, with jobs and that, that don't get exported abroad, uh, aren't subject to multinational corporations. Um, and, you know, the, these are kind of very basic values that she's been promoting um, where I think it's very easy to expect on the part of Macron this kind of uh, pro-NATO, anti-Russia, uh, pro-humanitarian you know, so-called intervention uh, um, program. Uh, so he, you know, as you were saying, Pierre, he's very much on the side of uh, the elites, the, the kind of all the, all the kind of globalist thinking that would make him a good uh, partner uh, for leaders in, in Europe, for Merkel, um, for others that would see things continue uh, the way they have been. Um, so those are just some of the implications behind this election and why it's so important 
not that we think that Le Pen will uh, or could change the course of things in any dramatic way, but but we know that she would probably at least attempt to put the, the stops on or, or slow the, the progress of all of the worst policies we've seen in, in Europe in the past uh, 10, 15 years. I, yeah, I don't even... I don't even hope. I wouldn't even have hoped for that from a Le Pen presidency. It's simply that, given at this at this point, because I understand just how corrupt the establishment is and how fundamentally undemocratic it is, and how people's minds are made up for them, where there's no real input from the population, where what the population wants is totally disregarded, and effectively it's man- manufactured by so-called elites and then given back to them via the media back to the public via the media, like, this is what you want, and then they go, go along with that. Um, <clears throat> it's not so much... Uh, it's not so much that... Uh, well, given, given, given that fact, and, and we know with the nature of, of the powers that be and how they manipulate people, um, to see the, the, same, the same establishment come out so strongly against Le Pen, uh, for me, under these conditions, she was the only one uh, to, to, to support... Uh, for the simple reason that if she became president, if you could get enough people to see that and, and vote her in as president against the wishes of the elite, then it would be so much fun uh, to see uh, the, the kind of battle, because it's been entertaining to watch the battle uh, between Trump and the kind of deep state, and the same would apply in France, I think, just to see, and not, not so much that it just would be fun, although it does make it more interesting uh, for people like us who, you know, have to look at it every day. But um, it would also, as I think has happened in, in the US, it reveals a lot to the people about uh, the deep state because they are forced to come out and use all sorts of uh, tactics and dirty tricks and stuff. And we saw that outrageous event uh, earlier this year when they came out with that dodgy dossier about the fabricated Russian dossier linking Trump to, you know, prostitutes and <clears throat> stuff in Russia. Uh, I mean, that is as good as it gets in terms of an opportunity for people to really see what's going on, you know, that, that, and see how how complicit the media is and these, these powers behind the scene, how, how complicit they are in terms of uh, or, or the belief that they have, uh, that they rule the country, that they run they run things, basically, and it doesn't matter who's in power. So, I mean, people really saw that in the US, and I think some people did. Uh, that's a good thing. And if the same could happen in France, it would be a good thing, you know? Mm. I think you're, you're both right. It's um, it's an opportunity when a, what they call populist leader, pro-people leader, is elected. It's an opportunity to expose the true nature of the deep state, and it's also a way to slow down the devolution. Mm. Because if Hillary had been e- elected, I think, uh, imagine Syria. Yeah, I think there would be uh, already thousands or tens of thousands of GIs on the Syrian ground. Um, so they, they can slow down, but can they do more than slowing down and inverting the tendencies? I mean, uh, it takes a lot of time and sometimes I think we underestimate the challenge. People like Trump or Le Pen, if she had been elected or if she is elected because it's not, not done yet, they're alone against the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. The finance, the experts, the media, the politicians, sometimes their own party, the Senate. House of Representatives, all those uh, top administrators in uh, various administrations. And, uh, you know, in venture, capi- uh, venture capitalists, when they decide to invest in a, in a startup, what they check first is not the business plan. 
is not the funding, it's not the net sales, it's not the patents or the ideas. What I look for first is a team, team competency, team complementarity. Because alone, for big projects like that, managing the US, managing France, you need a team. You cannot do it alone. You need relays, you need mm. generals, you need experts. And uh, the 100 days of Trump, to me, show that mostly his activity has been dedicated to this topic, firing and recruiting people, finding competent, reliable lieutenants in order to implement his, uh, his politics. So I think he hasn't caved in yet because all the struggles in the White House, he's trying to have a team so he can start working, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It shows the magnitude of the task. Just getting a team set up is a is a huge challenge. Right. Uh, there's just some data in over the last couple of hours. Um, the low turnout, apparently, lowest turnout uh, since 1981. Yeah. Uh, at five o'clock, the turnout was 65% which is down from 72% in the last uh, elections in 2012. So apparently uh, what some people have been predicting that a lot of French people will actually just say, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested, you know, forced, forced to, to choose between one of these two, two people uh, with the propaganda against Le Pen and with this idiot uh, Macron, uh, this uh, shoe shiner boy from Rothschild Bank who's, who, who would be president. People are just the people, and I think that for a lot of those people, that they might. Of course, there's a number of people who never vote in elections anyway because they're just totally they're not interested, never have been type of thing. But that number that's down maybe ten percent or seven ten percent is maybe indicative of the people in France who actually, to some extent, still uh, can see a little bit. You know, uh, I think there's <clears throat> two reasons for this uh, uh, low participation rate. There is a uh, one, the fact that no candidate convince a lot of people. Marine doesn't convince, Marine Le Pen doesn't convince a lot of people because of demonizations mm-hmm. by the media. Macron doesn't convince the people by his true nature that the media cannot hide fully mm-hmm. enough. Um, there's another factor, I think, is that there was a lot of arrogance from the Macron team. You know, the day after the first round, they were celebrating at La Autonne, a very fancy restaurant in, uh, in Paris with a Bernard, Levy, and Natalie, and all those uh, eminence grease who are behind the, the Macron puppet. They were celebrating, although the, the second round hadn't been done yet. And the media had been conveyed this idea that it was done, it was won. So I think you have a, a, a good number of voters who didn't go to vote because they thought it's done anyway. Look at the, the polls. Every single poll mm-hmm. gives Macron a head. Mm-hmm. 60, 40, 63, 37. It's, right. it's done. It's that's, a, that's a real encouragement for people to not vote, basically, when they see that sure. campaign over the past few weeks. And they say, well, why would I even bother if you've already decided? You're right. You know? Um, and there's actually a, a leaked document of there's an upcoming uh, G8, really a G7 meeting, uh, sometime in the next few months. And they had a, they had a list of the, of the heads of state from the G7 countries oh, no. and they had his name in there <coughs> for France well. this is before today so somebody was somebody who people who organized the, the G8 or the G7 without Russia had decided that well they were convinced anyway by the media 
it's amazing. It's just the whole thing is very, it's very, very strange to see, you know, just that level of, uh, of um, manipulation where people are literally being told this is what's going to happen in the, in the context of where they're being asked to go and decide what, what's going to happen. They're being told for weeks in advance yes. this is what's going to happen. Yes. Well, there, there's a double manipulation. There is a manipulation conveyed by the media. It's kind of brainwashing, literally. And, um, and you have the rigging. So imagine any candidate who is up against the media, all the media, every single media, and the rigging. You have to be very, very smart, very, very competent to win the elections. Because yeah. it means you don't need 50%, you might need 70 or 75%. Mm-hmm. And for Marine Le Pen, it's even more difficult because they, for decades, for other reasons, not that Marine Le Pen feared, the elite feared Marine Le Pen would become president one day for other reasons that we can explain. Her party, the Front National, has been demonized and labeled racist, xenophobic since, uh, the 80s. Yeah. 35 years. Right. So, but what does that say then about uh, the number of French people? Does that say that the number of pe- French people who would, who, who will vote, have voted and will vote for Le Pen, uh, that they are racist or that they don't believe in the propaganda that she's racist? Well, I think both are, are true. To be honest, you see how it's difficult to create reality. I'm going to give you an example. You have those elites who spin and demonize the Front National, labeling it the racist party. Some people are racist mm-hmm. in France, in the US, in everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a small percentage of people are racist and do vote for Front National because they believe Front National is a racist party, right. you see? Um, which is totally counterproductive for the elites. Right. Because they don't want it to, to reach power, the Front National. Now, it's very difficult for people who are not racist to vote for Front National. Because most of us, since we're born, we're subjected to this demonization. Um, maybe I can give you some data about the, the history of the Front National and mm-hmm. to understand where it comes from and why is it so, so strong, so pervasive in the French society. Front National is created in 1972, 45 years ago. <clears throat> After it's created as a political party by General de Gaulle, basically, through one of his operators is um intelligence agent, uh, Dupra, in order to call the extreme right members of other movements, Occident, a little, lot of groupuscule like that, uh, um, to channel them into the Front National in order to control them better. Mm. And this uh, agent, Dupra, will nominate Jean-Marie Le Pen as president of Front National. Mm-hmm. Jean-Marie Le Pen, actually, years after years, especially after the, the death of Duprat, assassination in 1978, will remove the neo-fascist members of the Front National and will change the doctrine from neo-fascist to nationalist, mm. defending the country. Mm. That's in the 70s, 40 years ago. It was a clean party by this time. and uh, But it was a confidential party. Was making like less than one percent during elections, so it was an anonymous small nationalist party until 1984. 
in 1984, you have François Mitterrand, president of France, socialist, left. Elected it three years before 1981. In 1981, Mitterrand tried to apply a truly leftist, socialist politics. Nationalization, social rights, etc., etc. The elites, seeing this move by Mitterrand, put pressure on him, especially through monetary pressure to devaluation of the francs because of very strong speculation against the franc. In 1983, two years after trying and failing, Mitterrand realized he would make it. He changed his government for a liberal government, economically liberal government, that has no difference with the right. Because mm -hmm. for decades, that was the line of the right. So now the left, the social party, has no more doctrine, mm -hmm. no more differentiation. So they need a doctrine. Mm -hmm. And they're going to embrace a new doctrine, a societal doctrine, anti-racism. But for anti-racism to be politically convincing, you need racism to be rampant. Mm -hmm. So they're going to create racism. They're going to create the anti-racist organization. They're going to start funding the Antifa, the anti-fascist uh, militia. And Mitterrand will call directly the, main, uh, the media bosses mm -hmm. and ask them to give more media exposure to Jean-Marie Le Pen for National. Mm -hmm. That will be labeled the racist party. And later in 1988, Mitterrand, using the secret funds, presidential secret funds, will fund the campaign of Front National for the European elections to give in give it even more exposure. Mm -hmm. And the stronger and, and you have cases, cases murders here and there in France will be attributed by the media, spinned and attributed to extreme right activists. Mm -hmm. So that's the the creation ex nihilo of a boogeyman of racism, the racist threat in France. And if there's a threat, you need a, a protection against the threat, mm -hmm. the new left. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very useful. You can imagine in politics if you saw someone, if, if someone in politics in, from the establishment saw that, uh, you know, they have this left-right thing going on, but it's not, there's not really any difference between the left and the right, uh, and, and they're going for this kind of like single uh, globalist or elitist kind of policies um, that eventually people will become disenchanted with that. And it's very useful then to have, I mean, and I say this, it's useful because it seems to have been useful for them to have a party like the Front National in France and in other European countries that have this right, these right-wing parties that they can turn and say, okay, well, we may be bad, but at least we're not as bad as them. You know, just have an extremist party, you know, and to fund them, to give them legs and give them a, a voice, basically, because you can always point at them and say, you know, is that what you really want? And this is what they do in France over and over, and over again. You know, it's like a protest vote. Le Pen or the Front National is used in the first round of elections as a protest vote or whatever. And then everybody's meant to be scared in the second round. But how often can you play that trick on people before they start realizing that it's a trick, you know, and before they become, I mean, and how often can they bring out someone like, like Macron or, I mean, people are in France are already disenchanted with mainstream politics, left and right. And they brought out this guy, Macron, as this kind of new centrist. He claims he's a centrist and, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's not established. He's, he even said he's anti-establishment, you know. But if he gets elected president and for the next five years he shows himself, or very quickly shows himself to just be another member of the establishment, what do they do in, in 2022 in the next elections? I mean, they've reached the bottom of the barrel in terms of yes. 
what they can present to people to convince them that this time it'll be different, you know? Well, you're right, because this second round opposing Front National to a mainstream party already occurred, as you know, in 2002. Mm. And the result of second round, it was something like 80 to 83% for Chirac, mm -hmm. the right party, and 17% for Le Pen, Jean-Marie, the father of Marine. <clears throat> Another time, I can tell you, before the first round and second round, you had a massive portion of the French population in the streets demonstrated against... And you cannot blame people. I mean, you can blame them for being stupid or naive. You cannot blame them for resonating for positive sentiments, mm -hmm. tolerance, mm -hmm. integration. Mm -hmm. And that's where they were demonstrating for and they voted en masse right. for against Front National. And all the parties at the time, all the leaders gave recommendation, do not vote the Front National. Mm. Stop to Front National. It worked very well. Mm. Now, fast forward 15 years later, it's a very different picture we have. It won't be 80-20, despite the rigging. Mm. Um, the first round, Marine Le Pen, I think she was first, uh, if there had been no, no rigging. Mm -hmm. And even amongst the politicians, you start to see some leaders saying, uh, some did say, I will vote and I'll support Marine Le Pen, like Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, who made 5% during the, the first round. Some said, no, no Marine, neither Macron. So, yes, this anti-fascism wall is showing more and more cracks. And now, if we have to to be under the, the presidency of Macron for five years, in 2022, I don't know who can stop the Front National because mm. Macron, keep in mind, is not... Uh, look at Fillon. The Bodan Fillon, with all those accusations that are not proved yet, none of them, huh? Mm -hmm. And Fillon fully embraced the economic and the financial agenda of the elites. Mm -hmm. And he was the prime minister of Sarkozy. Mm -hmm. He was for the intervention in Syria, mm -hmm. uh, in Libya. <clears throat> so he's a globalist economically and, and financially, right. but it's not enough. What was wrong with him? Yeah. It's not enough. Macron brings the worst of the right and the worst of the left. Macron not only will implement a fully globalist um, neoconservative economic agenda, mm -hmm. but also on a social, societal level. It will bring the worst of the liberals. The neoliberals, yeah. And well, no more religion, no more family, no more value, postmodernism, mm -hmm. cultural relativism, no more yes, no more no. The, the, this, bla this societal black hole. Mm -hmm. Well, the one of the big problems with Filon, it might have been the only problem, was that he was actually speaking reasonably uh, like Le Pen, about um, about Russia, and mm -hmm. ha had I think gone to either Sochi or one of the other conferences, and and they like right. him. Uh, this is a guy who Black Mark, you know, yeah. uh, spoke quite reasonably to them. Uh, so that that might have been enough to disqualify him in the eyes of uh, the establishment from uh, taking power. But um, just getting back to uh, La Front National for just a moment. Um, it's a really good tactic, and one of the few, I think, that we've seen from Le Pen is her uh, distancing herself from her father's party. I think uh, it was just a few weeks ago where she actually said she was no longer part of the party and kind of running independent of it. Um, she also suggested that one of her um, 
the prime ministers or, or one of her uh, the people that she would choose in her cabinet, uh, who's well known to be gay, um, you know that that she was embracing gays in France, which would also seem to suggest that she was uh, not coming from this kind of fascistic, uh, anti-gay um, uh, point of view. So I think, you know, for someone who was part of this party for so many decades and the, the very daughter of, uh, of, of this uh, founding um, leader of uh, the Front National, she, it was a kind of a strong statement that she's her own person and, uh, and that she is independent. Now we can be cynical about it and say that this was just a kind of political maneuver to to get people on her side, uh, but at least she seems to be aware of uh, a number of the, the points that you were making, Pierre, about this kind of straw man um, party uh, that was in some ways designed to make the other parties look a little better. Um, so, but who knows, you know, what kind of net effect or, or positive, uh, you know, outcome any of these moves can have so late in the game. Yeah, the, difficult to say what are the reasons why she fired her father from the Front National. <clears throat> My theory that about three years ago, about 2014, Marine Le Pen, um, yeah, a few years ago, Marine Le Pen was trying to go through this glass ceiling for National being stagnating around 15, 16% and realized that she had to gain the support of a Zionist. And for that, Zionist lobby. And for that, she had to sacrifice her father as a proof that she was going to change the ideology of the Front National. I'm not talking here about racism, fascism. I'm talking about support of Israel. Because Jean-Marie Le Pen was a fierce opponent of Israel and Zionism. Fierce opponent. So, Marine Le Pen sacrificed her father. And for a while, there were the possibility or the appearances that the, some Zionist uh, leaders might support for national. But it never happened. And then uh, about a few months ago, about one year ago, she changed back to an anti-Zionist stance because she realized she had sacrificed her father and the gain she was expected, she didn't get them. And that explains, I don't know if you heard about this uh, speech she made in Veldiv. Veldiv is a, is a little village where most Jews were deported because the names were given to the German authorities, were given by uh, Jewish authorities, actually, to the German authorities. And uh, when she was about, asked about this event and uh, if she was aware of the, the shame of France due to the, this, uh, this betrayal, um, this question was a way to, you know, to reinforce this eternal shame, eternal guilt that is one of the foundation of the the, um, the Holocaust religion. She said that <clears throat> I'm not ashamed because France was not in Vichy, the collaboration uh, regime. France was in London, Charles de Gaulle, and the resistance, and free France, and resistance fighter on the ground in every village, in every countryside of the of the country. And the proof that France was with the General de Gaulle that after World War II, 
he became the president of France. Mm. It's not Pétain, Marshal Pétain became the president of France after the war. Mm. So there's been a lot of, um, so there's a potential explanation for this, um, inter, this, uh, dynamics between, uh, Marine Le Pen and her father. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing, Joe. Did we want to talk about the, uh, the talks in Estonia, Kazakhstan and what's happening with Syria to, this time yeah let's yeah. do that and hopefully then by uh in about 15 10 15 minutes we might have the first uh you know preliminary exit polls from the from the french election but what's been going you on is go ahead yeah i was just going to say what what comes out at eight o'clock are not actually exit polls um because you're not allowed to do that in france um mm-hmm. people can't be harassed doing their wonderful civic duty <coughs> voting they have to be left alone um what what comes out of it? I mean, most polling stations close at seven o'clock, so uh, an hour later isn't long enough for them to have a, a kind of representation from all of the polling stations in France. You know, a kind of average or a, uh, that kind of thing. You know, so it's and supposedly they're they're quite uh, assuming there's no rigging. Apparently, they're quite uh, quite accurate. You know, there's so it's essentially a representative uh, sample of of real results. Okay. From the actual polling polling stations, anyway. yeah. Because actually, it's only in big cities in France that the voting booth closed at eight pm. Ninety five percent of the voters will have been voted, uh, will have finished voting before seven. seven pm. So they they're already counting in uh, in many villages. Mm. So by eight pm, you have a uh, um, partial results, but are fairly representative usually. Mm. Okay. Good to know. <clears throat> so. Syria, safe zones. So this last week, um, safe spaces, safe spaces, safe spaces, yes. <laughs> safe spaces have come to Syria. Mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks to Russia. Okay. Well, so this week there was the announcement that the no- negotiations held in Astana, Kazakhstan, had led to this agreement um, for um, safe zones. They're calling them de-escalation zones in Syria. Before the actual talks, this was in the news, and everyone, um, you know, in the in the media and alternative media, were kind of scratching their heads, going, "Oh, well, could this actually happen? What's going on here?" Um, because, of course, um, safe zones has been kind of a dirty word in the alt media because that's the the favorite phrase of the American politicians. Like um, it has, it's been touted by Obama, Clinton, Kerry. Um, probably John McCain, they all say they want safe zones in Syria, or they all did say that. And Trump has said the same thing. Um, he's been saying that all through his ca- campaign and even in the, the first months of his presidency, calling for safe zones and even saying, yeah, for sure, we'll do safe zones in Syria. The question, of course, being what does that mean? What is a safe zone? Because just like a no-fly zone, there are different definitions depending on who is saying it. So now we get to see what the... Um, Russian definition is of a safe zone um, because the talks did happen and it was agreed. Um, the talks, of course, are primarily um, headed by Russia, Iran, and Turkey, and but with the input of the Syrians as as well as this time some members of the so-called armed opposition. 
So this agreement was signed, and the text of it is available. So for the last few days, several people have been, uh, you know, writing analyses of it, and um, the the Russian Defense Ministry gave a, a press conference detailing the negotiations and the kind of provisions of the agreement. What it essentially is is that the um, well, Turkey, Iran, and and Russia will create a working group to d- determine the specifics of how they're going to set these up. But they're going to be four de-escalation zones. And these are, prim- well, they're all in the western part of the country. This is where they, where Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, whatever they're going by this, these days, and the, the so-called uh, armed opposition are in operation. So Free Syrian Army, all the, you know, ragtag uh, militia groups, etc., uh, you know, Jaish al-Islam and, um, you know, Nuruddin al-Zinki, all these kinds of groups. And the four zones are um, the basically the northwest of Syria, which is Idlib province, and the little little tiny bit of northeastern Latakia, over a bit into Aleppo, down a bit into Hama. That's the biggest one. That's the, the kind of rebel central. That's where the Syrians um, send any um, any militia guys that surrender, you, you know the they have the Syrians have an amnesty program. So basically, you turn you turn in your heavy weapons, or basically surrender to us, and then we'll give you safe passage to Idlib. So that's where all these guys have been going. Um, I think the numbers that I, I can't remember the estimated estimated number of fighters in Idlib, but it's something it's it's way up in the tens of thousands, maybe higher. Um, the second one is a little tiny, uh, relatively tiny one, East Ghouta, um, just east of Damascus another little rebel holdout. And the second one is Dara and Kunetra. This is in the southwest of the country. This is borders on the Golan Heights and Jordan to the south. So, of course, that is the region where um, the jihadis have free access, basically, to the Golan Heights and to Israel's medical services. And it is where you know certain um, so-called rebels are funneled across the border from Jordan. And then the fourth is the, uh, another relatively small pocket in Hama, just north of the city of Hama. And so these are the four main um, areas that are currently held by the by the rebels. So uh, everything else pretty much is, like there's one kind of tiny pocket right uh, right northwest of East Ghouta, which, is, which the, the, the Russians say they, this will not be a safe zone. This is Al-Qaeda-held territory, and it's just a, pretty much a tiny little, tiny little area, just the, the equivalent of some, a few neighborhoods. And there's something like, I don't know, 3,000 or either 300 or 3,000 Al-Qaeda fighters that are holding that, apparently. And then everything else um, is to the west or to the east of that, um, kind of in the deserts of, of Syria around um, Palmyra, or Palmyra, but north and and south of there, and then over in the east, of course, uh, Deir Ezzor and north in Raqqa. That's all ISIS-held territory. So the safe zones won't apply to to the kind of the, the entire eastern part of the country. And what exactly is a safe zone? Well, the Russians have said that these will be um, there will be no. Well, the the goal is to pretty much have like a complete ceasefire in these zones. So there will be no active fighting going on, no airstrikes. It'll essentially be a real no-fly zone, which means that there will be no airstrikes, no overflights from any powers, not the Syrians, the Russians, or any you know foreign 
um, you know, invaders like the U.S. or, or um, you know, the coalition fighters. So the the goal is to have a real safe, a real no-fly zone over these areas, and to establish checkpoints and kind of like a demilitarized zone around the the borders, which will be to be established of these safe zones, um, which will allow um, like safe passage for civilians, for humanitarian aid, and for um, you know. Um, any militants that are, want to surrender, and that these will be guarded um, and monitored by troops from the three signing countries. So that would be Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Mm-hmm. So, and then, but also the the armed opposition. So, you know, on one side you'd have uh, rebels that are essentially manning the checkpoints, and then the, on the other side of this like short kind of demilitarized zone, you'd have um, Syrians or well. I th- the Syrians say they may also do it as well, but that's not in the agreement. So you might have Russian troops on the other side. And um, at the press conference with the mili- with the Russian military, one of the journalists asked, well, what would be the, um, the response if there were a violation of the terms of this agreement? And the, um, the general said that essentially there would be like suppression fire. So basically we would, they, that whatever troops were there would respond um, militarily to any kind of provocation or um, violation of the ceasefire. Now, in the in the documents itself, it also makes clear that this is not a ceasefire against any Al Qaeda or uh, ISIS um, fighters. So, essentially, mm-hmm. what this is, um, what it looks to be, because well, that's kind of what it is all on paper. Um, so, you've got safe zones, which is a huge buzzword, and everyone likes it. So, you're you're getting um, kudos for the for this pretty much Russian-led initiative from all over the place, from the UN. Um, muted but still positive response from Americans. Um, pretty much, pretty much everyone involved um, in the Syrian crisis, in one way or the other, Saudi Arabia has stated their support for this, and that's probably just because it's it's a good PR move, especially tying it into um, you know the the U.S. buzzword safe zones. And even going so far as to give Trump a little credit, both the, I uh, believe it was Rudskoy, the, uh, I think he's the head of the, well, he's the head of some part of the Russian MOD um, relate, relating to Syria. He's the guy that gives all the kind of press briefings. And both he and Lavrov stated that um, this was partially developed out of conversations between uh, Trump and Putin. So, so you can probably guess what that means. Trump says, "Oh, I want safe zones," and then Putin says, "Okay, we can do safe zones." And so this is what we get. Um, but in actuality, what this looks to be is kind of um, a repeat, well, a, a kind of new way to to get what the Russians have been saying they want for the last year, year and a half, which is a separation between the so-called moderate opposition and the the radicals. And of course, mm-hmm. that was what the the ceasefire was supposed to do back. That you know that Kerry negotiated that the that the U.S. broke and um, you know which didn't follow through. And what essentially that means is that it's a way of getting as many of these jihadis as possible to say they're not jihadis and therefore you know not fight. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's going to be kind of a, a tough a tough thing to do. But at least it's it's kind of just to set it down on paper officially. Like okay, so these guys mm-hmm. are moderate opposition now, and anyone and anyone who doesn't agree is therefore al-qaeda um, because they're right. you know, still fighting or whatever and the and nobody so, can disagree that they're al-qaeda right. or that they're terrorists should be bombed because they're not complying with uh, reasonable 
uh, you know, settlement. Right. And that's exactly what the Russians say, is that the battle will go on even within the, the safe zones against Al-Qaeda. So they say that we will continue, you know, military operations against uh, Al-Qaeda along with um, opposition that are battling Al-Qaeda. So essentially what this looks to be is, in addition to everything said already, is a way to um, kind of turn the, the rebels against each other uh, even more than they've al already been doing because there are there is a lot of infighting going on currently, or has been. So that's the way, that's kind of the way it's shaped up. And what, like if, when it's implemented, because it did go into effect on the 6th yesterday, and so far, you know, everyone's saying that it's working out, uh, but they all, you know, that always happens. But the the one of the net results of this, if it follows through, is that once these zones are established and the uh, kind of all the checkpoints are set up, that will free up a lot of Syrian troops um, to then go on the offensive against ISIS, and that's the plan. That's what the the Russians say is the plan: is to free up all these troops to then go on the offensive. Um, east of Palmyra towards Deir Ezzor, and um, and then in the other kind of remaining pockets, uh, kind of eastern Aleppo, um, on the way to Raqqa, and then there's uh, you know a couple pockets around uh, Palmyra, but that seems to be the direction that's going. Well, th this mm -hmm. is a a really uh, kind of a brilliant plan in some ways, because what it manages to do is take out. The uh, the the Western definition of of uh, safe zones or no fly zones, which always end up being a kind of um, excuse to get uh, um, Western air forces uh, in a particular area uh, and just cause more havoc and and chaos and and actually grab a foothold uh, in the conflict. Um, so. Putin says, "Okay, uh, you want safe zones? We'll give you safe zones, mm -hmm. and and this is and these will be the facts on the ground. And you weren't at the Astana conference, so this is what's been determined. And uh, and really, you know, it, it's it's quite a good plan if, as you say, uh, you <clears throat> want peace and and you want people people's lives saved. Um, so it's it's just, really smart." Just interrupt. Just to break in there, uh, mm -hmm. Macron Breaking has won the French election. Ah. How much? 60? 65%. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's, but I mean, it's kind of silly. It says, according to a projection by Cantar Public One Point, TF1 RTL. But well, I mean, when that happens, then. It's projection based on, the, on results, on real results, not full results. But I don't know, maybe it's based on 1 million votes mm. and they project into the 30 million voters. Mm. So, but we were right. <laughs> we were right. Score. <laughs> That's a small consolation. 65% of the vote. Well, you know, we can't get too, we can't get too um, invested in these kind of things anyway because, well, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot more stuff to happen and come down down the pipe and stuff. It's not like it's uh Yes, yeah, so something that is clear that in only one month you have some more elections in France. Right. I mean all the congressmen will be renewed. Right. So and is he has to France is on the, the US and in France if the the con if the president doesn't have 
congressional majority, mm. uh, he cannot do much because mm. of the Congress that votes for the law. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he yeah. cannot enact new laws through its government. Of course, yeah, well, the guy has no, uh, there's no members of, of parliament for, uh, for his party. He has no politicians, basically. He's, he's now the president of France with no politicians. So right. between now and June and the, in, uh, for, and those elections, elections to parliament, he has to, um, yeah, he has to find, uh, that's not, that's not the problem because Macron has several purposes, you know, at least at the level of national politics. He was a way to resuscitate the Parti Socialiste that was dead. Mm. For several reasons, mostly for because of ideological failure and repeated betrayal and promises and, and flamby and flamby and uh, definitely helped the, um, this, uh, the strategy actually. And um, he will provide a safe haven, safe zones for all those uh, con- socialist congressmen that won't be reelected as socialists. But you're gonna have a lot of those politicians join his party. Exactly. And I, it will pick up from the right as well, because, I mean, the Republican, the, the candidate who right. won the Republican primaries and the, Repub- the, the candidate who won the, the Democrat primaries, none of them reach the second round. So the right. two main parties are, have no more perspectives now. Right. So you, we but, have to, to recycle a bit. Uh, but there's also the possibility of him having to form a, a kind of coalition. <clears throat> no? Um, in the sense that uh, he could rule by, I mean, he's going to have to pick, pick. I mean, usually I was reading something that, that on the night of an election like this, of a presidential election in France, the, the winning person who is, is now president, on that same night, they would usually nominate their prime minister. Macron mm-hmm. said that he'll do it by mid-May because he doesn't have anybody. who who He doesn't have any politicians, basically, to pick from. He's got nobody, effectively, you know. Uh, because he just formed his his party. I mean, he, he can't pick he can't pick a president a or prime a, a prime minister like from, for example, from the rank and file of his party. For example, let's say one of the top guys in his party, because he just formed a party the other day. All that would depend very much. One factor was the result that we just learned about 65%. Yeah. Another factor would be the result during the legislative. You do coalition right. if you're not strong enough to rule by yourself. If it's a big success, which I doubt, which he gain another big success during the legislatives, the Congress elections, then he might not need any uh, coalition. And but it's a very interesting because it shows another illusion of the, all these political things. Mm. You see those senators, those congressmen who are this... Uh, Democrat or Republican uh, tag on them for sometimes decades. Right. It means nothing. Tomorrow you're going to have dozens, probably hundreds of congressmen who have the new Macron tag. You see, they come from the right or they come from, uh, they come from the left as well. Mm. So it's another proof of the illusory nature of this bipartisanism uh, propaganda that have, we have been fed for years and years. And the, the big question is, how many congressmen will the Front National get? Right. If he gets enough, he will become uh, the opposition, the true opposition party. And uh, so maybe some more fireworks will happen because there will be uh, indeed a, a true opposition and true, uh, true debates. And mm-hmm. But that's still uh, 35% for the Front National is uh, their highest score in, uh, in history, French history. So uh, It's 15%. It's, almost, it's, almost, it's almost double. Twice. 
Yeah. You remember I was telling uh, you guys, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen in 2002, mm -hmm. the only time the Front National had reached second round, he mm -hmm. made, I think, 17%. Right. It's double. And again, keep in mind, it is rigged. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is rigged. You have plenty of evidence. You have the, the, all those experts who got two voting uh, cards. You have got all those... Uh, Lyon, the city of Lyon, more than one million people, there's not one blank vote. Mm. Huh? And they all massively voted for Macron. Mm. You get those people who get rallied for my election lists. I mean, thousands, uh, thousands and thousands of people. There's so many irregularities that we need another show just for that. So, yeah. It means without the rigging, maybe Le Pen was ahead. Close, really close. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you two guys. Harrison and Alain, you're just quiet there because you're so devastated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, had, I just had to go out of the room for a second and start crying. So. You had to take a moment. <laughs> yeah. All our hopes uh, dashed. Dashed. There's nothing left to live for now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I just, I just, I mean, it's nothing personal. I just don't like, I mean, it's not because of ideology either. I just, well, it is because of his ideology, but I just, watching the debates and watching TV appearances and listening to that Macron guy, I just don't like him. He's unhinged. He's a crazy person, you know. He comes across as slightly kind of schizoidal or uh, some kind of a, a deviant psychological uh, makeup there, you know, and just listening to him and he, yeah, it's hard to put your finger on. That's sometimes a very, one of the main reasons that I one of the, one of the things that is, is most convincing that there's something wrong with someone where you can't put your finger on it. You just know that there's something wrong. You can't define it. You know? Well, don't worry. The five coming years, we give you plenty of opportunities to confirm your, yeah. your feeling. <laughs> exactly. Well, so having the, we go to Paris for the party. <laughs> That's no, a good idea. Anybody? Yeah. We'll celebrate. <laughs> We'll go, yeah, apparently it's in the in the Louvre in the yes yeah oh, the in, outside yeah in in the no, dungeon in the dungeon under the Louvre in the, in the dungeon under the Louvre yeah. where all the zombies are uh, <coughs> yes les zombies um, mm -hmm. les zombies les zombies yeah uh, yes. anyway <laughs> uh, yeah I mean this is. Uh, it, it's obviously uh, not happy news, but as you were saying earlier, Joe, and as Pierre just mentioned, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to uh, to point out just how and so why sorry. this guy is. I thought probably sorry. Yeah, and I think in the grand scheme of things, by being French and kind of identified to France, it's a it's a tough news, but well, we expected it. And in grand scheme of things, uh, I think this tidal wave of what they call populist movements in the unstoppable. I mean, because that's not only France, fortunately. In Greece, Syriza, they betrayed, but it was the same premise. In, Sp in Spain, the Podemos, uh, Italy, five-star movement, in Netherlands, in Austria, where the, the, the label extreme right uh, candidate was actually elected and then they canceled the election and reorganized the elections. And we finally lost it all over the planet. So I think there's a major political shift from the illusory left-right duality to uh, people who are realizing that the only true racism is the one that the psychopathic elites nourish 
towards them. Yeah. Well, that that's the irony, isn't it? It's the policies of guys like Macron who uh, eventually kind of uh, impart the most racist, uh, wholesale racism, um, with the surface veneer of uh, liberalism, um, because mm-hmm. you know you can just expect him to kind of bow his head to whatever stupid uh, continuation of, of Middle East wars um, that we're that we're going to see. And just to tie this into what we were discussing a little while ago, um, in connection to what's going on in Syria. Um, you know, my, my heart kind of sinks a little bit uh, to think that this, this agreement has put, been put together, not because it's a bad agreement or, or a good arrangement, but because every time we see something like this happen, there is this kind of deep state military, uh, CIA, Western, uh, covert um, act, of, uh, act of extreme violence that gets um, that that gets perpetrated that seeks to subvert every every bit of good and constructive policy that's being put on the ground. So, like uh, you know, several months ago, we had this tentative agreement between Lavrov and Kerry, and then boom, uh, you know the 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 coalition strikes um, the Syrian army in Deir Ezzor uh, as they're on the cusp of defeating ISIS and a and hundred Syrian soldiers get killed. So anyway, that's just something I kind of anticipate in the near future because things can't go, they're not allowed to go well over there. They, things can't progress. No. They, they can't be permitted to. And you know how um, those two topics, Syria and France, actually converge in a kind of scary way that on one side you have to this liberal candidate Macron with pro-war who will uh, willingly join the Western forces to shed blood in the Middle East. At the same time, a big difference between him and Le Pen beyond the, the war stance was the migration stance. Macron, the world is a world without border, without nations, without limits. So while bombing the Middle East, Macron at the same time leave the border open, will trigger because of the bombing of the walls massive flows of migrants, which is not necessarily a problem if we didn't know that in those flow of migrants you have infiltrated maybe thousands of Al Qaeda operatives. Mm-hmm. So it gives us an idea of what is awaiting us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, actually, just uh, just a shout out to to Joe's or a mention of Joe's article earlier in the week um, kind of goes into this a little bit. Uh, what was the title of that, Joe? Um, the muzzies are coming. <laughs> the muzzies are coming. Uh, the muzzies are coming. Adopt a refugee. Yeah, and just a very good kind of explanation of this dynamic that you just mentioned, Pierre. Um, that will only exacerbate the the already tense situation among uh, migrants and and Muslims in places like France and other parts of Europe uh, until there is there's going to be or could be some kind of quote unquote final solution 
uh, possibly. Um, I mean, that would be the, the, the kind of worst of all outcomes, but you know, you can just see where this, all of this is going. Um, so, yeah, I think European people cause, uh, Germany is probably in a worse situation than France, actually, on this level. Um, I think people feel this growing and justify anger. And uh, many countries are on the verge of civil war or revolutions, manufactured or not. But when such an event ha- happens, you need a target, the enemy. So there will be a choice to be made. Who the enemy is? The elites, the one who brought us to misery, injustice and lies, or the scapegoats, the evil Muslims. And uh, it's interesting that uh, in parallel to this rise in populism, this growing awareness in the people about the abuses, the violence of the elite, you have this uh, vilification, this growing demonization of the Muslims, as if they're preparing these preemptive moves in order to rechannel the anger of the people towards this uh, convenient scapegoat. So that would be very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, listen, uh, we're going to actually cut it a little bit short this week because, um, well, we'll have to wait and see what the fallout is, I suppose. But uh, if anybody's interested, I, ha- um, I have a little interview on Press TV in about 10 or 15 minutes or so. Uh, Press TV, the debate. It's going to be about 20 minutes or something. It's obviously on the French election. So if anybody's got some time to waste, uh, you can check that out. It's on PressTV.com, whatever. Um, but we'll leave it, uh, I think we'll leave it there this week and we'll. Uh, well, um, yeah, we'll have to just wait and see. And we'll go and get some beers, some gluten-free beers, and cry into them. <laughs> and <laughs> pick ourselves up again and move on because next time. There's always next time. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Five long years. <laughs> Five long years. Well, it's going to be a roller coaster for sure. All right. Will you take us out then, Harrison? Well, bye-bye. To you. Yeah, we'll speak to you all again next week. So everyone take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thank you.